Good evening, everyone online and everyone here in person. It is so good to be here tonight because um, we are continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians. And uh, we took a few weeks off, and I'm super excited to jump back in. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name's Danny. I'm the campus pastor here at Mosaic at WW. And uh, I, uh, when I was in college, I um, was an athlete, but of a very um, kind of obscure sport that probably some wouldn't even consider to be a sport. It was judo. Um, judo, it's a Japanese martial art. It's like one-on-one. It's a lot of fun um, because you get to throw people on the ground and choke people out and stuff. I'm just kidding. That's not the fun part. The fun part is getting to like compete and getting to um, engage in a team dynamic and stuff. And I had so much fun in it. And there's two ways to win in judo. One is through a really clean throw. So like it's you against your opponent and then you like throw the other person and there's like the textbook way to do it. And if you do that, then you can win the match. The other way to win is through um, submitting them, which is to either uh, choke them out or to put them in an armbar or something like that and to get them to basically submit because of the pain that they're in. And um, something about me, um, if, if you like play any game ever with me, you realize that um, my pride really comes out when a win is on the line of any variety. Like it could be on whose luggage gets out on the, on the luggage carousel at the airport first. Like I am going to destroy you at this thing, okay? So when I was, um, when I would be in judo and I would be competing against an opponent or even not even just an actual competition where it actually mattered, but like when I was just like sparring with um, one of my training partners, I would like do what Ever I could to not submit. Like they would be like breaking my arm off and I was like, go further, further because my pride and arrogance is pretty um, uh, notwithstanding, especially when I was 20 years old. Um, I hated to submit. See, there's something within me um, and I think within all humanity that kind of detests the idea of submission because we equate submission with like it is in judo, where to submit is to give up, it's to quit, it's to admit defeat. Um, I thought of an even stronger word, it's to be dominated. And none of us like being dominated. I mean, I would imagine none of us have on our top five list of things to do, dom- being dominated is one of them, right? Like that, it's a terrible feeling, it's out of control, it's failure, You see, in our world, we have seen this dominating version of submission and all kinds of stories, whether it is the um, the empire and the first order in Star Wars, they are trying to force people into submission through domination. Um, We see it today on our planet in the brokenness of of ugly um, dictatorships and regimes that force um, obedience through dominating submission. We have seen it in the dominating presence that have been brought to light in workplaces through the Me Too movement. You see, it's no surprise when we think of submission, we so quickly think of the abuses of it. But here's the question for those of us who follow after Jesus. How does, does our desire to resist submission get affected by whatever it means to follow after Jesus? What does it mean that we believe the truth of Jesus in this space that when we look at our culture, we, only, we oftentimes just see the abuses of it? Now, we are journeying through the book of Ephesians, and that's where we're going to be tonight. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, in Ephesians, 
So far, all the, um, over the last year that we've been in Ephesians, we have been talking about how we, as followers of Jesus, have been given a new identity. And this new identity is absolutely insane and incredible. That we are no longer slaves to sin, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we are no longer sons of disobedience. We are now sons in the light. That we are to step away from the brokenness and the dark spaces of our lives and submit to God in that space and instead submit to him in life, light, and freedom. Along with this reality, though, is the, re- is the reality that our lives are not our own, that we are now called to be imitators of God. And here's the thing. When we think about Jesus, let's just take a quick side note. When we think about Jesus, what's the first image you have in your mind? Is he just your big brother? Because he has that. But you see, there's this word that's used about Jesus throughout scripture and definitely used within the church. It's the word Lord, that Jesus is our Lord. Now, I'm cool with Jesus being my savior. I'm cool with him being my big bro. But for him to be my Lord. Because see, a Lord, that's not a word that we use commonly in any respect in the United States except towards Jesus. Um, if you're in the UK, that's still, a, that's still a phrase that's kind of passe over there. But here, we never really use that term. But the simplest way to understand what a Lord is, is, is the person who gets to call the shots. That Jesus, in following after Jesus, he gets to call the shots that our lives are no longer our own. And therefore, we submit. We submit to Jesus. Now, Before we get into the passage that we're jumping into tonight, let's talk quickly about what submission is versus what it is not. Because again, when we hear that word submit, if you you cringed at all like I did when I found out I was preaching this message, you're like, oh, no, like uh, submit. Like, Like, can't we like get an updated version of this or something, something that feels a little bit more palatable? But the reality is, is submission is not meant to be cringeworthy. It's meant to captivate us. The best definition I found for submission, it's, it's kind of simplistic, um, but I love this. It's to follow loving leadership. That is God's divine ideal for submission, that we would follow loving leadership. Now, here's what that is not. It is not always affirming leadership, as in it is not somebody that's always saying, oh yeah, go ahead, go right for that thing. That is not always going to be loving leadership. So it's not always affirming leadership. Here's also what it's not. It's not abusive. It's not manipulative. It is not cruel. It is not forceful. It is not without limits. Those are the versions that we have seen though in broken spaces on our culture, right? See, when it comes to submitting to God, his leadership is always loving and perfect. Now, we left off in the book of Ephesians a few weeks ago unpacking Paul's words of wisdom for the church where he says that they should live out, here's how he says it in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oftentimes, I've, I've heard of the common thought, I mean, I'll submit to Jesus, but I'm not going to submit to anyone else. Fair, I, I totally understand that in my, in my heart. The only problem is that Jesus and the rest of the authors of scripture don't leave that as the only alternative. That it's it's as we submit in different spaces that we submit to Jesus. 
So that's what he's saying here, submitting to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ, because the submission is ultimately toward Jesus. And this is the space that we are walking into tonight, because you see, it's kind of an insane thought. Like submitting to Jesus is one thing, because his leadership is always perfect. It's always loving. It's always kind, right? Right? But then you step into the church and you are surrounded by other saints. But the only problem with saints is we still carry around baggage. So we are now seen as Christ, but the reality is, is we are still flawed. We still bring in all of our worldview and all of our brokenness into this space. So somehow Paul is still saying, yeah, and submit to one another, even in that reality. So Paul is getting a little bit controversial here, right? And he's gonna get more controversial because tonight what we're talking about is three different relationship dynamics that Paul wanted to specifically address that were very relevant in the Roman culture and still affect us today. These are in the relational dynamics in marriage, in parenting, and in our work relationships. Now, why did he pick these three? Well, first important thing to know, in the ancient world, these three relational dynamics composed of what was called the household code, that these three relational spaces were the three spaces that affected essentially everyone in the ancient Roman empire in some way or another. There were common relational dynamics where submission was not just the cultural expectation, it was legally required. If you do not submit in these ways, you can get arrested or killed. So all of us, we have certain areas of our lives where we are more and less comfortable with Jesus poking and prodding, right? It's fair to say. And when I hear the word submit, I kind of cringe. And I'm imagining some of you do too. Are you like me though, equating submission with domination? Or can submission be something that's actually beautiful? Can it lead to human flourishing in the gospel? Can it allow the gospel to be on display in our lives? That's what we're gonna discover tonight. So let's see what Paul writes. And what I'm gonna ask is that we would go at it with an open mind and an open heart to see, can submission really be following loving leadership? So um, in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What a passage. I know that that reads controversial. I know that that is difficult in our cultural context to hear because again, we have seen the abuses of it. But if we were to put ourselves into the context of of women in ancient Rome who would have been hearing this in the church in Ephesus, the thing is, is that this passage wouldn't actually be very controversial at all because again, it was the law. There was a legal right for women to submit to their husbands. In Roman culture, submission was the given. As barbaric and as ugly as this sounds, wives were considered property of their husbands. So the real question we should be asking is, why would Paul bother to even instruct these wives to submit to their husbands if that was what was already culturally expected? You see, it's not the what that is, what is so crazy about this, it's the why. So let's start from the beginning of that passage again, and we're gonna take it bit by bit. First of all, who is this addressed to? Wives. 
So who is this not addressed to? Women. As in women submit to all men. That is not what this passage is saying. It is specifically saying wives submit to your own husbands. Now, let's pause for just a second. That still might be offensive or difficult for you. And if that is you, that's totally okay. It's okay to wrestle with scripture. It's okay to not know how to interpret something. It's okay to grow. It's okay to ask questions. So don't feel like just because I'm up here preaching this, that all of a sudden you have to just go, well, it was preached on Sunday. So now I guess that's my belief too. Ask questions of scripture. The authority of scripture is way greater than the authority of Danny. So it starts by saying, wives submit to your own husbands. Now, again, if the way we are defining submission as God's divine ideal, that it would be following loving leadership. Wives, follow the loving leadership of your own husbands. How? As to the Lord. As to the Lord. See, this is not, this is not something for the faint of heart, but it is something that is meant to be ultimately about Jesus. It's not about the superiority of men. It is not because men are smarter, because men are guaranteed to be better leaders. It is not because men are more spiritual. It is not because men are just the best in any way, shape, or form, or that we have some unique relationship with God that women have no capacity for. It is absolutely not that. What it is, according to what Paul is writing here, about displaying the gospel through your marital relationships. According to Paul's teaching, Jesus is encouraging, or what, um, what he is encouraging to is just as the church is called to follow the loving leadership of Jesus, what he is saying is wives, follow the loving leadership of your own husbands. Here's also what it's not condoning, abuse. This is not condoning abuse in any form, physical, verbal, sexual, emotional, or any other. If you ever find yourself in a place of abuse, whether it's in a marriage or not, I can guarantee you that that grieves the heart of God. And I can tell you that there is, there is counseling, there is protections, there is guidance, both within the church and through the legal system. And that is not okay. And especially if a verse like this is being used to manipulate towards that end, that is definitely not okay with God. What this is about is following loving leadership. Now, worth noting, only Jesus's leadership is perfectly loving, right? When we talk about following loving leadership, then you're like, sweet. Well, then I'm only gonna submit to people in my life that are loving just like Jesus. If that's the case, then we will never find a person to submit to except for Jesus. So it's not that, it's not that we are called to wait until the, uh, the other person is absolutely perfect before we submit in any way. What it is about is that there is a big difference between abusive, manipulative, micromanaging and imperfect, loving leadership. One should not be submitted to. Help should be sought. The other, there's grace. That grace can be given. The amount of times that Allie has given me grace when I am just such a knucklehead. So that is Paul's word to wives. And then 
Husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the ancient world, this was highly controversial. Think about this. If women were nothing but property in the eyes of Roman society, then why should a property owner feel the responsibility to sacrificially love his property, right? I mean, think, think about that. I mean, how many of you have ever thought how you would sacrificially love your wardrobe? How many of you have ever been like, man, I'm just gonna die for my car tonight? You know, like we wouldn't do that. That would be silly, And that's the way that the society that this was written into would have viewed this concept. Husbands, die for your wives daily. Love her in such a way that she would become more like Jesus in your care. Treat her with honor, kindness, respect, listening attentively, learning from her and with her, demonstrating empathy. Now, I have been married for four, almost four years now in a couple weeks, and I can tell you that as each year has progressed so far, I have learned that this is the weightiest calling in my life. To demonstrate loving leadership to Allie. And this is how I desire to love Allie. I, love, I desire to demonstrate loving leadership to her. But you know what? Oftentimes I can speak more than I listen. I'm quick to frustration. I take, I wake up in the morning and there are two paths that I could take. There is the one that leads to death of self and sacrificially loving Allie and serving her. And then there's the version of selfishness and just doing whatever I want. And a lot of mornings I take this one. (laughs) But do you see the gospel through this passage? Do you see the beauty of the gospel here? That Jesus's sacrificial pursuit of his bride, the church would be on display in marital relationships that he would stop at no end to demonstrate his unconditional sacrificial love for his bride. And for those who are called into being husbands are called to demonstrate the exact same thing. This is not about men, you get your way. This is about men who are called into being husbands. You have the responsibility and the high calling to demonstrate the love of Jesus to your wife. And that is hard. That's hard. In fact, it's impossible, right? See, Jesus' sacrificial love is not something that is easy. And if you are married and you are listening in in whatever version tonight, you hear that and it should be difficult to know how to live this out. It should feel like, I can't do that. That's way too much. Whether it is to follow loving leadership or provide loving leadership, this should be beyond your capacity. If it's not, you would be Jesus. You're not. So it should be beyond your capacity. In which case, just like the rest of these, you need the spirit of God to work mightily in your life that you would be able to demonstrate the gospel through your relationship. Now, if you are here and you are unmarried, this verse can either seem inapplicable at present or um, the traditional way that a, a passage like this is preached is, well, keep this one in your back pocket just in case you're ever married. You can pull it out and you like have it for that rainy day or whatever, you know? No, <laughs> just no. I, 
let me clarify that. Yes, maybe, but also no. <laughs> what this does give you the opportunity to is to experience the gospel wherever you see it, including in the marriages that you see around you that are displaying the gospel. That's a good thing to be encouraged by the gospel wherever you see it. In fact, that didn't stop the apostle Paul because he's single and he's noticing this. So he is seeing the beauty of the gospel on display in marriages and he wants to see more of it. I wanna see more of it. So you have the opportunity to witness the gospel, to be encouraged by the gospel through marriages that are designed to display the gospel. Here's the other thing it can grant us, understanding. Understanding for those who are unmarried, having a greater understanding for those who have at present or who have been called into spaces of marriage, whether you are ever called into that same reality or not, you can have greater understanding. And absolutely on the flip side, for those who are married, we need to grow in our understanding of those who are currently single, whether they are called that way for the duration of their life or they will ever be married. We absolutely need to have understanding for one another because you know what? The family of God has never suffered because of our great understanding of one another, only our lack thereof. So we follow Jesus' loving leadership as we display submission and care in our lives through marriage. But now let's get to parenting. First, he has a word for kids. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So first he talks to the kids in the audience. So he's talking to children. Children, okay, that's the who. What are they called to do? Obey their parents. Why? Well, first, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Then why? For this is right. This is not Paul saying it is right in the sense of like somebody's asking a question like, well, why should I, why should I submit to my parent? And then you're like, and then you're like uh, because I said so. Like this is not Paul giving an I said so kind of be- Because it is right. What he is getting at in that word that is meant for right is that it would be something that would be morally right or something that would be holy, something that would be drawing us nearer to Jesus. So what he is getting at is that we become more holy and for kids, they become more holy as they are learning and submitted to God's desire for them to learn and grow from their parents. Now, in Exodus 20, there is, um, there is a scene that is set early on in Scripture. So the, the Hebrews are in Egypt in slavery, and they have been set free thanks to God working mightily through Moses. And they leave, and they go into the wilderness. And as they're in the wilderness, they go from being this discarded, outcast slave group to now being the covenant kids of the family of God. But as these, this new covenant family of God's desire, they are being called into a brand new space to follow the way of Yahweh, to follow the way of the Father. So what Moses does is he goes up the mountain, up Mount Sinai, to discover what is this way. And he comes down with two golden tablets, which we now know is the Ten Commandments. And on them, there are a lot of things that you've probably heard from time to time. The good ones like don't murder, um, don't covet, some of those kind of good things, right? right? 
But then there's one of them that stands out as something a little bit different. It's the only one with a promise. And it's this one that's listed right here. Honor your father and mother. And so when he's talking about this is the first commandment with a promise is because it came with this promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And this is because the parents of that generation, they were never going to get into what was going to be called the promised land. They were going to die before they'd ever enter in. So in order for it to go well with them in their land, they needed to learn from the, from the beauty and from the brokenness of their parents. They need to be able to honor their parents so that when they went in, that they wouldn't go and just go crazy, but instead they would draw near to their God. So children have the unique opportunity to obey and honor their parents, but not just because their parents deserve honor and obedience, but because they are God's kids. God's desire for children is to obey their parents as one, because ultimately it leads to their holiness and to their flourishing. So that's his word to kids. Now his words to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Roman society, fathers, just like they had property ownership over their wives, they also had the same over their children. And they could not get in trouble in any way for disciplining their kids however they saw fit. They didn't have to be gentle. They didn't have to be kind. They didn't have to actually really like their kids. They could administer discipline however they saw fit. And what Paul is advocating for here is that fathers would treat their children with kindness, which would be absolutely revolutionary in that society. What he is arguing for isn't just even your standard kindness, that they would treat their children as they have been treated by the father. Now, over the last month that I've been wrestling with this passage and studying it, I have been so convicted by it. For those of you who don't know Allie and I's story, Allie and I um, have been in complete survival mode for just about six months now. Um, we adopted our son, Asher, and um, uh, Allie gave birth to our daughter, Abigail, in July. Um, so all within the span of six months, we became uh, parents of two under three. <laughs> It's not overselling it to say that we're stressed and easily to snap. But I have been so convicted by the way that I have been parented by my father. Not just my earthly dad, even though he was great, but my heavenly dad. Who loves me so much with such grace and kindness. How does the, how does the father love us? He is slow to anger. He doesn't provoke his kids. Yet I find it easy to provoke Asher. I didn't even know that was possible to want to provoke a child. But when you're frustrated, it's easy to want to frustrate them back. But that's not the way the father handles me. His love is abounding. His wrath is slow. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in compassion and kindness and he disciplines us absolutely, but it is not out of fury and anger, but it is with the desire for us to grow nearer to himself. This is the way that I have been parented. This is the way that for all of us who are in the family of God that we have been parented. So for all of us, grace on grace. If you are at present a parent or you ever become one, grace on grace. 
guidance and discipline. Slow to anger. That is the way the father has loved us. And he is calling us as parents to demonstrate that love to our kids. Now, how does this relational dynamic affect us today? If you are a parent, desire to display the gospel by parenting with the love that has been given to you. And by the way, that again is a love beyond your capacity. That is leadership beyond your ability. But it is not too great for the spirit inside you. For many of us, um, we are grown, we are out of the house, and we have not conceived child yet or adopted a child or fostered or anything just yet. Um, if that ends up being what God calls you into. So how does this passage apply to us? Um, the first thing I'd say is that obedience does change when we enter into adulthood. Um, I know that passages like this have been used um, by parents to kind of manipulate kids, um, uh, especially older kids into their 20s um, at different times. I've heard that a decent amount of times. Um, and I don't want to go too deep in that just to acknowledge the fact that yes, obedience does change into adulthood. Yes. But you know what doesn't? Honoring your parents. The way you do it might, but the call is still the same. And that's convicting for me with my mom. So what does it look like for you to honor your parents or paternal figures in your life? Is it when there is something that you know that they have a lot of wisdom and experience in to go to them and ask them for some guidance? That honors, right? It's an honor when somebody comes to you for advice. That's a good thing. Is it um, prioritizing that trip home that you've kind of been putting off for a while? Is it um, a text message or calling? I don't know. I don't know the paternal figures in your life. But what I do know is this call still stands for all of us who have a paternal figure in our life of any form. So honor your parents. And we follow Jesus' love as we demonstrate this kind of submission and when we display this kind of care in our lives. So let's get to the final example that, that Paul provides, which is in the workplace. So let's first start in Ephesians 6, starting verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back this will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So bondservant, what does that mean? We don't have an exact comparison in our day and age to that phrase. Um, the word is often translated also slave, um, but slavery was very different in Rome and ancient Rome than it is and present in either modern day slavery or in um, what most of us think of when we think of slavery, which is race-based chattel or property slavery that was present here in the United States, especially here in the South. Now, a main difference between slavery that it was race-based chattel slavery here in the United States and what Paul was writing into um, is two things. One, it was race-based. And then second, um, uh, it was lifelong. So that was the way slavery was formed here in the United States. There wasn't hope for freedom except for escape. There, there really wasn't an opportunity to buy your own way out or anything like that. 
In Roman, um, in ancient Rome, in Ephesus, uh, slavery was a big deal as well. It bolstered up the economy. In fact, one third of the city of Ephesus were slaves. They were men and women, but they were. But some other differences is. Oftentimes, uh, they were not just reduced to menial labor or household duties. They were also, they literally managed entire businesses and multiple employees on behalf of their master. Um, and some other differences, uh, they were oftentimes even better educated than their masters so that they could run the business so that their masters could slack off and be lazy. Uh, they were often, um, they were even allowed to be married and stay with their spouse, um, almost certainly. And they were even able to purchase property which is very different. But here's the biggest difference. They could buy their own freedom. They could save money. They could receive money and purchase their own freedom. In fact, in, in Rome, around the time that Paul's writing, there, were, there has been noted 500,000 slaves purchased their own freedom. Now, why does that matter? Um, here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to reduce what the horror of slavery looked like then. It was horrible in its own ways back then. I'm just expressing the differences just so that when we are reading this, we are reading into it the proper context, okay? It's not to minimize. It is only to show the, con- the, the different contrasts. Now, these distinctions are important. And it's important because oftentimes when you look at in scripture, especially in the New Testament, it it seems like Paul is glaringly silent when it comes to the abolishment of slavery. And we can look at that and go either one of two things. God and Paul either don't care about slavery enough to even really get into it, or they're actually for it. And either of those things would be a complete miss on what is actually happening. See, what is true is that In Rome, there was never an abolition movement that was active in Rome. And in fact, every major culture up till this point in Rome had a slave trade. It was such a normal thing throughout the history of humanity that just shows the brokenness within humanity. Also, another thing worth noting is that Christianity was new on the scene and had very little political influence. So Paul writing about abolishing slavery wouldn't have actually carried any significance um, other, than like a more, other than just a moral significance. But what I do want you to notice as we go back to this passage is notice how Paul is tearing down slavery from the inside out. Let's read it again. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. How? with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Paul is writing to bondservants with dignity and respect. He is encouraging them to follow the leadership of their masters, but he gives them a new reason as you would Christ. What he is saying is you, you are no longer just your masters. You are Christ. You belong to your true Lord. The true Lord who already purchased your freedom the true Lord who looks you in the eyes with dignity and respect and calls you loved. Who doesn't care about social classes? Who doesn't think that someone is superior to you because of their status in culture? So what he's getting at is, so when you work, do it for him, not for the broken systems and not for your flawed leaders. Now, if you have ever worked for Disney, working for Disney is not slavery. I totally understand that. I work for Disney. It is not slavery. And so it's important that we first draw that important distinction. But what does apply is the fact that while, it, while Disney might be the most magical company on earth, 
it has a lot of great leaders, but it also has some flawed leadership, right? If you worked for Disney, you probably had one or two leaders, I'd imagine. So what do we do then? What do we do when um, they gossip about us? And you're like, wait up, you're the boss. Why are you doing that? Or what do we do when they, when they make a new policy that you're like, that does not make sense on the ground? What do we do when they are doing, making decisions? You're like, that just doesn't make sense. Here's an even bigger one. What do you do when you have so many friends who are getting laid off by the company and you're just filled with bitterness against the executives that made this decision from Burbank? What do you do then? Do we allow bitterness to root down deep and to allow us to just be so frustrated, so warped? Or do we allow love to flow that we would be able to work, that we'd be able to do our jobs well, not because Disney's our boss, but because our true boss is Jesus? That we would do our jobs well, that we'd follow our leadership, not because they're perfect, but because your true leader is. And then he writes to masters. He says it this way, verse nine. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. Treating them with a goodwill as to the Lord. Treating them with dignity and respect. This is controversial. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. This is the heart of abolition. On display. In Roman society, masters had no right to treat their slaves any different than they saw fit. They had no obligation to do that. What Paul is commanding them is to set aside their rights and to instead treat their slaves how? With kindness as brothers and sisters before the throne of grace, fellow heirs to the throne of Jesus. Now, for some of you, you might be business owners or you may be leaders at Disney. Um, you might manage a business for somebody else or be in charge of others within the private sector or nonprofits or even in the church. And here's the message for you. You are not the boss. You're not. I'm not. You are not the boss. If you follow Jesus, if you are called into the responsibility to care for the lives and welfare of others under your care. You are not the boss. You are called to lead, to guide, to give encouragement, and to speak life into. You are not called to abuse, neglect, frustrate, and demean. In fact, if, I mean, you may have heard this before, but if you want to see the true character of, of a leader, do not look into the way that they treat their superiors or even their peers. Look at the way that they lead those who are underneath them. On, on whatever the org chart looks like. That is, the, and that is what displays the character of a leader. And especially for leaders who follow after Jesus, that should be an upside down economy where if anything, you spend more time with those that you lead than those who are above you. Loving them, caring for them. So in our relationship uh, relationships of employment, we have the opportunity to demonstrate the gospel, whether as employees following the leadership of those over us, because we know who our true leader is, or on the flip side, as leaders who lovingly lead those in our care, because we aren't the true leader, but we know the one who is. We follow Jesus's loving leadership as we demonstrate submission and care in our lives.
See, once again, Paul is talking about societal expectations gone completely insane by the economy of love. And Jesus is still blowing up societal expectations today by advocating for us to demonstrate loving leadership and submission within our culture. In a culture where power has been continually manipulated and warped, where submission brings nothing but skepticism. It can even make people terrified of any concept of submitting to Jesus. But we have the opportunity to demonstrate this kind of love to the world and everyone that's around us, that we have submitted ourselves to Jesus in the relationship spaces of our lives. See, not all submission is about winning or losing, dominating versus survival. The version of submission that we live into in the life of Jesus is not like judo. It is not about choking somebody out or being choked out. It is about demonstrating the gospel through our willingness to follow the loving leadership in the places that we are being led and to demonstrate loving leadership in the places where we have been called to lead. This is weighty. And this is beautiful because if we do this, if we live this out, what we end up doing is we become a gospel presence through our relationships. And we do that in the middle of a dark world that desperately needs beautiful gospel presence. So let's go and demonstrate the gospel and do it not in our own strength, but only in the strength of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I confess that what is so often in my heart is a desire to not submit to anyone or anything, even you. I don't want to submit to leadership. I don't want to submit to governmental systems. I don't want to submit in the workplace. I don't want to submit... Lord, I know that there is a mixture of motivations within each of our hearts that make this passages like this especially difficult, whether it's been past experiences that have just been so horrific. And for those of us who have those, Lord, those experiences that are honestly nothing like just traumatic, that is traumatic, that is leading devastating imprints on our brains, that when the synapses of our brains fire off, that Lord, it just brings nothing but fear and terror. Lord, I pray tonight in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would bring freedom and healing, not just so that, uh, that this specific word would be followed, but because freedom is what you offer. Freedom is what you desire. And I pray for freedom from trauma for anyone that has been a victim of abuse in any form, in any way, whether it might quote unquote feel significant or not. Lord, I pray for freedom. Lord, I pray that when, um, when there's passages like this that, that stand so contrasting from the culture that we find ourselves in, Lord, that we would prioritize your word above our culture and our personal worldview. Lord, I pray that we would deconstruct our worldview in line with your passage. Yes, Lord, we need you. We need you. We need your word to 
to live in our hearts through the power of your spirit. So spirit, speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would demonstrate your kindness in our relationships in the weeks ahead. That whether we are married, whether we have kids, are kids, or are in some, in some version employed or an employer, Lord, that you would draw each of us near to Jesus through the relationships in our lives. And we see every moment connected to you. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray.